Edmund Huitan is the Asia Society's Vice President for Global Arts and Cultural Programs, the director of the Asia Society's Museum in New York City, where he oversees the museum's collection of traditional and contemporary art, photography, and new media works by Asian American artists. He previously served as director of the Singapore Art Museum, where he helped assemble the largest collection, public collection, of contemporary art from Southeast Asia. In 2013, he led the Singapore Biennial as project director and co-curator. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Mr. Boon Gui Tan. And thank you all. Thank you. Uh, audience members, I realize this is the last thing standing between all of us and happy hour. <laughs> so, <laughs> I will try and finish ahead of time or leave more room for uh, questions. I was a bit concerned when the organizers asked me to speak on this topic because primarily, uh, in a sense, I work in a very specific context with a particular kind of audience and you know, a particular type of artists, uh, whereas I think all of you in this room represent a much wider swath and much more diverse uh, kind of situation. Uh, but I thought that, uh, uh, first things first, please ignore the write-up in the uh, brochure. <laughs> what I want to say is actually in, in two parts. First, I want to say a little bit about this whole issue of global audiences and global programming and working locally. And then I want to sit, give some provocations or suggestions based on the, the sort of examples that I've encountered. Particularly, uh, what I'm going to say is very much targeted at presenters and uh, people who are, are working out programming strategy for especially small and medium uh, art centres and uh, museums. First, I want to make a few comments on this word global. It's a really frightening word. Uh, I know funders love them, uh, board members love them, the press loves it. Um, everywhere in the, in the arts press, you know, there's always this, this kind of wish to have global exhibitions, though no one has any idea what they, they actually mean. You know? So you have global festivals and you have global artists. Uh, if you move around the, the sort of contemporary art circuit, uh, usually coming from big museums and global curators, they'll tell you, oh, we focus on you know, artists who are global in nature. But nobody is able to explain what that means. But I think on the level of programming, the danger of that kind of thinking when it is actualized is that it severely limits the range of programming that is available to both the centre as well as, you know, to the museum or, or to uh, the audience. And, and that, I think, partly has to do results in that kind of hierarchy that you get with art centres. You, you get, you know, you call some, some people major museums. Some museums are not called major museums. You know, it's very prevalent. There is a kind of paradigm that, whether explicitly or implicitly, we all uh, sort of imbibe. So, for example, if you were working with Asian visual art, you must have an Ai Weiwei exhibition. You must do Kusama. You must have a mirrored room. Otherwise, you, you, are, you are provincial. Okay? If you work in an arts festival, any arts festival that aims to be global, you, know, you must have the Berlin Philharmonic at some point. Right? You must have the Bolshoi Ballet, like Lincoln Center. Uh, 
I think I want to first say that these are great artists and great groups, and everyone should have the opportunity to see them at some point in their lives. However, on the part of organizers, I think to, to start with something like that as the benchmark is slightly problematic because it, it closes the range of things that you are able uh, to produce. Again, another caveat, I will, I will keep caveating throughout the entire presentation. Again, it's about context and specificity. Uh, there are certain topics that for all intents and purposes, and we can have a conversation about why it's, it's like that. In, even in museums, there are certain topics that are very high up on the desirability ranking. Uh, those of us who read the annual survey of the art newspaper, when they list globally, you know, all the top exhibitions in terms of visitorship. And usually when you look at topics, number one is, anybody knows? Number one and two? Globally, the number one, sorry? Dango. No, dinosaurs and Egyptian mummies. <laughs> okay, no one beats King Tut, no one beats a T-Rex. And globally, these are the topics that, irregardless of where you are, they tend to attract very high uh, sort of visitorship and, and, and the public loves them. So I will caveat that despite what I said before, there are certain kinds of topics that, that belong in that kind of horrible, global desirability uh, thing. So, of course, the challenge is that this type of programming is frequently beyond the reach of many art centres and many museums. Right? How many times can you, how many people can bring in the Bolshoi Ballet? Um, so, what, when we say we also want to reflect a sense of globality, you know, and not just be local, I think that's a very, that's a kind of end game that does not bode well. So, what can we do? I want to give some suggestions. Before that, I want to go back to this idea that what I'm going to say, I think, comes from a certain perspective of what I personally feel is the purpose of the arts. And I'm very uh, moved by the discussion earlier uh, because the same word was used. I feel that at this moment in time and in this country, and I've recently only moved to this country uh, for work, that the purpose of the arts really is to awaken a sense of empathy. But empathy towards what? Empathy towards the other. Empathy towards other lives. And part of that, I think it's very important in this moment that we're in now, where really the, the trend in, in whether social political forces or economic forces are creating a situation where lines are drawn. And we're talking about hard lines, like hard Brexit like that, where it's a hard line, where it seems very clear that I take a pencil, I draw, and you are there, I am here. And the purpose of the arts now, I think the most important purpose is to fudge that line. And one of the things that I think uh, those of us that work in the arts should do, even when we're talking about art education, what are we educating people about? I would suggest that one of the most important things we're educating people about is the ability to read ambiguity, the ability to read grey areas, the ability to live with demilitarized zones that don't belong to you or me. Uh, and that, is, that capacity uh, is, 
in a sense, steadily being eroded because everything is becoming too clear. And that's not the purpose of the arts through its millennial history uh, across the globe. You know, it has always been about also helping us see paradox, helping us see the contradictions in life, that where there is life, there is death. Where there is peace, there is war. You know? Where there is joy, there is pain. All this is, is part of it. And it seems a kind of very apparent thing, but it's rapidly being, being lost uh, today. Going back to what I said about, you know, not that I don't like Ai Weiwei and Kusama and so on, I know we, I love their work, but for an art institution, for museums, for art centres, the dependence on blockbusters as a way to these kind of mega projects, as a way to project a sense of being international, of being larger than the place you are in, I think it's a very dangerous game to play. There is the situation that I'm sure some of you are very familiar with, this thing called the blockbuster cliff effect, where you have a lot of visitorship and sponsorship. The moment it ends, it goes like that. And I would like to suggest the reason for that is because mega projects like this, high value, you know, high impact projects like this, over the long term, I think the question that each of us need to ask is, does it engender a love and emotional attachment to the exhibition, to the artist, or to the museum or the centre? What is it that we want? And my suggestion is that the focus should be on how programming engenders an emotional attachment, a love, a kind of passion for the venue, you know, for, for the place that is presenting it, which is, uh, I know there are some artists here, I don't mean to, <laughs> it's not, <laughs> but from this perspective, I think it's important to keep that in mind when we decide, you know, how we approach programming, that the purpose of it is that in the long term, we are building a love for our venue, for our group. And what is one of the indicators of that? For museums, uh, for many years, I've always said, the indicator of success is that no matter what you put on your banner, people will come. That is the actual indicator of success. It means that the bonds that have been formed, your, your bond with your locality, with your constituent, have transcended you know, specific uh, individual programming. And that's very important, especially if we are serious about educating our audiences to like, to be able to come and see things they know nothing about and they may in fact feel a little bit afraid or, or dislike before they've ever seen it. So there is a kind of, uh, I think, shift that we need to make. Now, going back, I have also always advocated the importance of locality, that each centre should not start, or a museum should not start by aspiring to be global. It sounds very scary again, and I apologise for that, but rather to start by saying, what is it that makes me relevant to my locality, to my immediate locality, to my city, to my region? Uh, because those of us, for example, that have experience with the art market, yeah, just as an aside, we take a parallel example. Why do galleries and, curate, and Biennale curators travel all over the world? 
it's because, very fundamentally, we are trying to look for local expressions of art that we do not have access to. You know, we have an obsession with the new. We have an obsession with artists that we have never seen. So think of that bubbling in your mind. You know, I don't go to, uh, you know, you don't go to a place to see an artist that you necessarily already know. So how can that, in terms of programming, uh, be used in a sense for local, for centres, you know, that are far away from the big metropolitan centres, for museums and art centres, you know, that are much smaller in size, you know, that have a kind of, for all intents and purposes, periphery uh, positioning to the major established museums. And I would suggest that part of the reason I'm advocating that is that the way I see it being global is not a noun. It is not a condition. It is a way of acting. It is a process, a way of programming. What do I mean uh, by that? One way to see this is, for example, across the world, there are many instances, for example, of centers that are, or program projects that are very locally imbibed, but which use a comparative approach. By comparative approach, I mean they are trying to, in their programming, find or realize a kind of relationship between the specific locality that they are in and the artistic production of a geographically and historically distant but very, very specific uh, kind of place elsewhere. The Jogja Biennial in uh, Indonesia, if you get a chance, do go and see. It's, 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 a, it's in a rural area in Jogjakarta, uh, but one of the centres of visual art, has a very interesting concept for their biennial, realising that they could never be the Venice Biennial, they could never be Guangzhou, they can't be Documenta with its, you know, tens of millions of euros of funding. So how do they manifest uh, a biennial, uh, a contemporary art event every two years that is both local, that is featuring you know, artists in their locality as well as global? So they adopted this sense of the, this concept of the equator that every biennial, they will look at artists from Indonesia and another country that is within the equatorial region. So Nigeria, India, you know, certain countries in the Gulf. So it's very, very specific. And their sense of globality is simply to find a kind of not just difference. I think the trick is to find the points at which these different places resonate with each other. And I like the word resonate. It's not about similarities. It's about finding sympathy. Okay, so very close to this idea of empathy. Uh, the other day I was having a discussion with a curator who was doing uh, a project which I thought was very interesting. In 2020, the United Kingdom, the US and Holland will celebrate a very important event, the, fourth, the 400th anniversary of the sailing of the Mayflower on, six, I think it's 16 September 1620. So an event that uh, I thought was very interesting and very important, particularly also to this country in terms of, uh, you know, what it means in, in the national mythology. And that one of the founding events of this country, one of the founding myths, has to do also 
we've been in a situation of forced migration, of religious persecution. Surely, you know, in this day and age, the resonance with what is happening in the Middle East, in North Africa, you know, in places like Greece, with forced migration with the refugees and, and all these kinds of issues, surely there is an ability to find a kind of you know, resonance that can connect something that is very cherished here with something that is very far away, that most of our audiences will only see through CNN and dreadfully Fox News. Um, but it is possible, it is possible. Uh, so that's one uh, sort of idea. The other is this idea where the area that I work in, um, in Asian uh, material, uh, I've, one of the things that I've always been struck by is perhaps one of the more interesting things to make that, uh, in a sense, resonate locally is to not just look at Asia as something that is out there, beyond the sea, beyond the Pacific, very far away, TPP is cancelled, you know. Uh, it's some abstract thing, but to look at the Asia that is here, the Asia that is part of America, and to acknowledge that that is Asia as well. The Tropen Museum uh, in Holland, in Amsterdam, has a children's museum. For those of us, I would highly recommend, if you're interested in children's museum, that is a very interesting uh, museum in terms of how they, they, they organize exhibitions. Uh, a few years ago, I went to see that museum and they were having a show on Brazil. And what was interesting, the exhibition is about a year. It's a very long exhibition. But what struck me was that every guide in the exhibition, and you are guided from beginning to end, every guide in the exhibition is a student of Brazilian descent who is studying in Amsterdam, in Holland. And the exhibition is a year, so they employ them for a year. But because they are living in Amsterdam over that sustained period of time, they are the perfect ambassadors because they can talk about Brazil, but they can talk about it in, a term, in terms that mean something very profound to the, the audience of that because they, this is the country where they are spending many years of their life. So there are many kind of, I think, innovative ways, you know, beyond looking at importing, you know, so-called global names that one can think of oneself as, as acting globally. Uh, but I think the way to do it really is to look at our own uh, kind of context. I want to then go on to some more specific provocations about ideas that over the years I've been playing with and have encountered. Uh, one of them is much more physical in terms of how we use our spaces and structure our spaces. There's always a lot of talk in the literature about you know, how we, uh, the museum or the art centre or art spaces are social spaces. The suggestion I want to give is that for those of us who are working on these things, or better still, who are building new ones, to think of a way, in a sense, to physically, and I do mean the word physically, designate uh, spaces in our institutions as free civic spaces. Let me give an example. Um, in Paris, I think in the 19th arrondissement, it's very far out, uh, in a very largely immigrant and also 
uh, there's a lot of Muslim population in that place. There is an old, there is a center called Le Songkhat, 104. Okay, it, to me, um, when I was organizing the Singapore Festival uh, in France, uh, we worked with that center. I was very impressed uh, over what they did. Uh, being in a very diverse neighborhood, a poor neighborhood, a neighborhood with high employment, unemployment, and you know, you, you have single parent families and so on. What was interesting was that how much of that space, and I have to say that space is a former coffin factory, by the way. So think of a <laughs> coffin factory. Was that they designated yeah, huge areas of public space as free space that is protected for the local community to come and use as they want. What does that mean? For example, there is a, a space in the centre where the youths, you know, who are free to come, and what do they do? They, they come and dance. They come and dance. And the role of the guards in the centre is only one role. Their role is to make sure every group that comes, every teenager that comes has his or her space, that everybody gets to, and they don't tell, they don't, there's no regulation, you come and dance, you know. It's the only centre where they deliberately buy a lot of chairs and, and sort of loungy things, and it's just scattered through, through the, the, not in the corners, you know. In museums, we, we tend to put seating in the corners, you know. We just hide them away. It's right in the middle, because I think there is a sense that part of making art relevant and part of engagement is to create, especially in dense metropolitan cities, free and safe spaces for the community. It's very, very rare that there are. So the, 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 the people that come, they actually feel very safe because of the presence of guards, you know, because the, the security there and the guides there, you know, they add to that sense of, of, of uh, safety and that sense that people could just convene together that everyone will find a space. And again, I think what is interesting to me is that this is also a centre that has a lot of artist residencies. When I was there, they were showing a big show on Keith Haring. So it's not, it's not about, it doesn't in a sense negate the normal sort of programming thing. Um, I think there was a mention of uh, what some things have been happening in the Arab world. Uh, Sharjah Biennial. Uh, I, again, I highly recommend it for one reason, that it is, an, it is a kind of art event, a biennial, that with each instalment tries to rehabilitate parts of the city. So that is, how, that is a, another kind of way of literally, physically, that, that arts engagement can also be a physical process. Like in a city that is very new to contemporary art, that you have, that the public can see that this art event, which is very expensive in local terms, you know, is contributing to the city by rehabilitating the city. I think that is what, uh, in New Orleans, the initial prospect uh, Biennial was trying to do. But Sharjah, I think, does it really, really uh, kind of uh, well. Of course, the, I have to admit the property developers will love you for it. In Singapore, uh, I organized uh, one edition of the Singapore Biennial um, in a place that should not, well, in an old airport. And they couldn't lease it out the moment the biennial finished. You know, there was a lot of interest in it. So 
Okay, that's something, that's another way to get sponsorship, by the way. Uh, and then I want to say a little bit about uh, this idea of engagement, and I, and I think it's very real that uh, there is a real danger, also because of the way such things are funded, that there is a kind of, should I use the word? I'll use the word, dumbing down of art. And uh, there was a discussion about community art and all that. I think it's very important to, to know that community art should not be a dumbing down. It is not about simplification. In fact, we need the opposite. We need, in a sense, across all spectrums of art, you know, to teach people how to read complex, ambiguous ideas. Uh, I want to again give an example of children's uh, exhibitions. Uh, in Singapore, for many years, uh, when I ran the Singapore Art Museum, every year during the summer holidays, I'll run a, a project called Art Garden. And it's actually an exhibition for children. But what we did was, uh, and the educators sort of were like, oh, <laughs> what we did was we commissioned very senior artists to create work. And we said, it's not necessarily for children. We just want you to challenge you by, can you create a work that has a certain level of interactivity, that has, in a sense, an ability for the audience to understand the complex ideas that you as an artist uh, were wanting to communicate and that we will work with you. You know, we'll, we will work with you to find different ways of manifesting it. And the one thing we learned, actually, the key to something like this is to not create the art for the children and especially not to write the text for children. Um, a lot of times, the obvious thing, you know, you would ask educators to write to, you know, a nine-year-old level. And what we found was that it actually became more successful when we wrote for the parents, the adult caregivers, for one simple reason, that when they came, you would have the parents or the adult caregivers instructing their children how to access the art. So that was an interesting kind of learning, to think of a children's exhibition, like how do we find a way to maintain the, the sort of artistic integrity that the artist wants, because sometimes they're very sensitive about, oh, it's an art for children. And one way, uh, this is one sort of way that we have found. And on the level of engagement, we found that really, uh, when the feedback forms came, why do you come to this show? And the num one of the top answers was for family bonding time, because of the way it was structured. So again, I think what I'm trying to say is that these things about global, globality, locality, high art, low art, arts engagement, arts education, it's not a white or black thing. There are ways, and I think around the world, uh, the global art community, sorry, it sounds so terrible, the global art community has found many, many innovative solutions, and I think you know, we are in this age of the internet and, and people are, uh, some of us, you know, are moving around. There is a great kind of potential for all of us to learn from each other across the globe. How these kind of, frankly, really innovative uh, solutions to art have been found. The last thing I would make, because I'm running out of time, is that uh, 
what I found has been very useful, which I'm sure all of us have done to some degree, is this idea that the locality, that somehow we should program as if we were part of something else. That means to go back to this idea of not being trapped by the walls of the museum, of the art centre, but look at what else is around, that actually if we enliven, uh, in the words of urban planners, the district around us, uh, it actually is a much more effective and um, long-term solution to general audience development than if we were to do it uh, alone. So, of course, collaboration, but also, you know, some places have this idea of being part of BID, business improvement uh, districts. In Singapore, uh, very early after the National Museum opened, the National Museum of Singapore is a history museum. It's in the middle of the old civic district, uh, but the entire district has been dominated by a new business university, uh, which in a sense drove away or you know, led to the removal of street life. And the thing with that university was the architecture was that most of the stuff was underground. So that means on the ground there's nothing. There's just like rolling planes you know, and asphalt. So what we did, what we did was... Uh, through working with the planning authorities, and it was funded through, through this kind of urban planning initiatives, not funded by the arts. The arts don't have money. <laughs> okay, physical planners have money, so that's another suggestion. We created an annual event called the Night Festival. You know, in Paris, you have the Nuit Blanche. Sometimes you have the White Nights. But that was interesting because we discovered there was a hunger among the public for culture you know, for culture, but it's free. We open everything till 2 a.m. What we did was we just made sure that there, were, there was programming or exhibition or performing arts that linked one cultural venue to another cultural venue physically. It's not a conceptual link. That means during the, what, the night festival nights, if you were to come to the district, you can see there will be something leading you from one museum to another museum, one centre to another centre. And it sounds very uh, trite, but actually to be able to be within sight lines, I think is very uh, important. So that event now gets like half a million people uh, over two, two weekends. It's completely free. And because of that, the, the, the sort of uh, other businesses in the district have come out. So even at that level, I think, again, going back to this idea that it's not a zero-sum game, there is a kind of innovative, there's a kind of game that we can play even with uh, you know, seemingly commercial sort of venues. So I'm running out of time. I just want to end with that. So those are just, of course, they're not the only ones, but I feel that we are living in an age where in a sense, every one of us that work with the arts, we cannot ignore our local constituency and local issues. But it's not, again, I stress, a zero-sum game. It doesn't mean that being local means you cut yourself out from larger sort of uh, issues and perspectives that are not part of your horizon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, now we're going to do oh. Q&A. Yep, don't go anywhere yet. Some of the work that I've done has put me in a situation where I've talked to people who 
say, well, you don't sound like you're an arts worker, you sound like you're a community worker. And I think that we're living in a day and age, too, where the ease of getting on to things through our, even these handhelds, still is belied by the fact that people want to gather. And that we in the arts are creating, whether it's Rive Blanche or whatever, we're creating opportunities for people to gather. And I was wondering if you'd just add a comment or two on, on that side of things. Yeah in terms of art engagement is to really see our spaces. And again, I'm, I'm emphasizing also not just conceptually, but physically. How can we look at the spaces that we have as convening spaces? That means convening as in not just we doing the convening. How can we enable, uh, structure the spaces such that the, the, the larger public or other interest groups can Convene. Sometimes it may be very formal. Uh, in Japan, the 21st century museum of Kanazawa, Japan is really amazing. You have these brilliant museums in, in this farming community that is, is vibrantly sustained. In Kanazawa, the museum was set up, uh, the architecture itself is, is built in such a way that in the center of that complex, there is a gallery that is literally the community gallery. And that gallery is set up for the local community to organize their exhibitions in the heart of the museum uh, itself. And then the curated exhibitions are in a separate uh, sort of gallery. My name is Marnie Gittleman, and I consult across disciplines and collaborate um, among and amidst themes and um, with interdisciplinary artists, as well as community at the core. And I. I think that what you're bringing forward is um, what I would express is at the heart, literally, right? And all of the projects that, uh, that I tend to mission and gravitate towards have one thing in common, and that is our human values. And I want to uh, pose a question, I'm curious, with, within the work that all of you do, the expression that you take, the various forms, um, how often does the beginning of the process, the thinking, the germination, begin with a conversation around values as compared to goals? And then from there, emerging out what the goals are and those access points for that meaningful engagement. And um, I think in your, your title here, How Do the Arts Appeal? I'd love, I'd love to start with the heart as, as one great place um, to get that percolating. Um, I just have one point to, to make and may not be entirely satisfactory. Uh, again, going to back to this idea of empathy and, and yeah. the, my point about finding relations between very specific uh, localities. I think one of the things that one of the goals or aims, one of the aspirations that I think the arts has now in this moment in time that perhaps was not so urgent in other periods is that I think the arts must embrace this idea that the art is now also an important antidote for existential loneliness, for loneliness that we are living in a period where you know, we are separated and it is very, very difficult to find connection uh, 
So it's not just about joy, but how the arts can show, somebody was saying, pain, because we share. We share certain, certain types of pain as, as well, you know. Uh, and going back to this, I think, again, I want to make a pitch for something that I said earlier. Uh, I'm not saying that this whole idea of mass art engagement is bad, but I think that what is important now is actually deep experience. That when we're talking about transformational, it's deep experience. And, and I wanted to make a pitch, especially for those that work in the performing arts, that really it's not the 1,000-seater that should concern us. It's really whether we can get 20 people in a room and change their minds forever. My name is Lynn Snej. I'm sorry, I, I was the, uh, on the panel uh, just uh, this afternoon. So just about this deep engagement, I just want to say that um, you know, we've dealt with this issue of the ability of the arts to, to create empathy and the growing role of empathy in the arts as well, in the arts production. And one of the works that we've had the, um, the honor to host in Washington DC uh, last year was actually a very intimate work. It was an installation piece um, um, that could, um, on the Syrian um, early uprising, um, that was done by a Lebanese-British artist by the name of Tanya Al-Khouri. Mm. And we um, hosted the, this exhibition at the National Building Museum. And that was a very, very intimate, deep experience where this artist um, um, archived and researched the lives of um, 10 uh, social um, activists that had perished um, at the hands of um, the regime and you would go into a room, we could only get 10 people at a time, and you would have, the room is made up um, as a cemetery, and you would have to, you are given a name, you don't know uh, the person that you are going to meet, that person is dead, and uh, their narrative has been researched and recrafted and stitched and retold by a close friend or a member of the family. And the, the humanizing impact of this piece, you actually have to go in, you are given that name, given something to wear, you go towards the grave, you dig in the dirt, you almost lie on the grave, and you put your ear on an audio device, and you hear the story of this person, and you leave the room with just one story, only one. And that has had such an impact on humanizing you know, that story. Uh, we've had an incredible media uh, coverage on it. We've had sort of people leave the room crying and uh, you could leave a, a note to the family of that person. You would you know, put the paper in, inside the grave again. Yeah. Um, and those are the, the, you know, we didn't have a lot of people see it because we've only, we could only get a certain number of people in. Um, per day, but I think the people who saw it were, um, I don't think that they would look at that conflict and at those people in the same way again. And those are ambassadors of that, of what mm. they saw. Hi, Randy Korn. Um, thank you for such a, um, an important presentation. Um, my question really is about, um, things that I've observed in working with museums around the country. 
I, I observe that museum educators have in their hearts and value what you, what you are saying about empathy and wanting to be conveners to bring people in their communities together to talk about the things that are the issues of our day. Um, and um, they work in organizations that are uh, traditional, if you will. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're uh, an administrator, right? Uh, you're a vice president. What advice might you say to museum educators um, who want to change the way that their museum might operate and um, shift the values a little bit and have their executive director and even the museum boards recognize the value of this kind of convening, uh, the, the value that it can be, being a place that, where people convene to talk about these issues. How, what, what, what might you say to a young person who really uh, wants to live that value? <laughs> okay, so wearing my administrator hat, not my curator hat. Um, I would say, I mean, I, I agree with you completely. I think this issue of the, the kind of conservativeness of the museum, not just in this country, but, but especially the uh, established museums, is, is sort of rubbing at the pressure of the times now. So my simple answer to that, a pra hopefully practical answer, is I, I, my suggestion would be for every educator to lobby for one prototype project. Like, not, don't, I, I, I think the, the philosophical gulf is too big sometimes, that, but if there's a possibility of seeking some sort of indulgence <laughs> to, with the director or, or you know, a sponsor to have one small prototype project, uh, I think it's possible, but at the same time, I, I do have to say, I have seen examples even of museums that do embody some of these, some of the things that I'm saying, like even in New York, the Queen's Museum, I think it's, it's quite exceptional, you know, in its embrace of, of its constituency. Yeah. It's it, money. <laughs> you need to beg for a small, <laughs> portion of, uh, or one way to do it, in what, I, what I've done before, beg for savings. You won't get any budgetary allocation, but if you can make a pitch that in the mid-year financial reporting, you could get a little bit of the savings. So, you know, savings, just go for savings. Don't, don't ask for budget allocation. Thank you so much for Thank this you. keynote. <laughs> Thank you.